On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to the March 2020 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today for what will be a very informative conversation on recent advances in severe asthma. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Nathan Scheffler as our guest. We will be discussing his paper entitled, Recent Advances in Severe Asthma, From Phenotypes to Personalized Medicine. Nathan, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. For the benefit of our audience, maybe you could introduce yourself. Yes, hello, I'm Nathan Shetler. I'm an instructor of medicine at the University of Chicago. Great, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. So maybe we can dive into your article. Why did you write this review article on severe asthma? So there have been a number of recent updates related to the field of severe asthma, focusing on um, both translational approaches as well as basic science and, and recent clinical trials that have now enabled asthma to be looked at, I think, as a, a disease to approach from a personalized standpoint, and the therapies are, are starting to reflect that. So we wanted to provide a, a, a translational overview of the state of severe asthma. Well, that's great to hear. So in 2020, what is our current understanding of asthma, and how do we classify it? So asthma has been recognized for decades as recurrent wheezing, airflow obstruction, and chest tightness. These are really the hallmarks of asthma. But we also know that overall asthma is a heterogeneous disease that results in these common symptoms. And so we've moved beyond recognizing asthma just as these clinical symptoms and towards understanding asthma as having phenotypes and subphenotypes that are clinically relevant. Um, and so this is reflected now in, in our understanding of therapies in terms of treating asthma patients, but as well as some of the basic science. So it's important to move beyond looking at asthma as a single disease and uh, looking at it more as a number of different heterogeneous diseases and approaching it from that perspective. Great. So for the benefit of our audience, maybe you could explain what the difference between a phenotype, a subphenotype, and an endotype is, because that's pretty relevant to your article. Yes, it is. Um, so we talk about phenotypes as being categories of patients that have common features, and these can include clinical as well as uh, laboratory values or uh, spirometric values, and those can be used to classify patients based on certain variables. So one thing that I'm very interested in is the difference between what we would describe as childhood onset asthma and adult onset asthma, where these two groups have very different features in childhood onset asthma. For example, there are more boys with the disease than, than girls, and it tends to have a high remission rate, whereas adult onset asthma has more females than males, different comorbidities, um, and tends to be harder to treat. Um, so these two phenotypes then are, are relevant because it, it may change the way that you approach the patient and the therapies that you put them on. So that would be an example of different phenotypes. Uh, Subphenotypes would be classifying patients beyond simply adult onset or childhood onset asthma, but also considering potentially gender or um, the therapies that patients respond to. Um, and there are other groups that have been looking at severe asthma phenotypes um, and categorized patients into different categories of, of phenotypes. And the ultimate goal is to link phenotypes with a, a treatment that a patient is going to respond to. 
as far as endotypes, that really focuses on the molecular mechanism uh, which is driving asthma. For example, there, there may be a, sort of a common pathway across different phenotypes uh, that is shared that, that would then be a, an, an endotype, sometimes related potentially to the microbiome or gene expression changes that at the molecular level we're able to see. So in terms of TH2 responses and uh, elevated eosinophils um, or elevated IgE levels, um, where would that fit under phenotype or endotype? So that really fits with a specific TH2 phenotype, um, and those values are, are lab values, um, and you can then make decisions about clinical therapies based on that. Endotypes really refers more to the molecular mechanisms and is more of a, a research term at this point, although the, the goal of understanding endotypes is to further refine phenotypes and identify either common or, or distinct mechanisms of disease that are driving the phenotypes, which then can be measured based on laboratory values or spirometric data, for example. We're currently regarded by a phenotypic uh, uh, the, uh, trait. So in your paper, you mentioned that uh, 1 in 12 patients or 8% of patients in the world have asthma, and about 10% of these have severe asthma, which means probably about half a percent of a considerable number of patients have severe asthma in the world. What current available therapies uh, are there for asthma, and how should we choose which ones to use? So that's a great question um, because we, we have now been armed with uh, additional medications. I would say the first thing is that the main therapy for severe asthma includes high-dose inhaled corticosteroids combined with another uh, medication. Often patients who have severe asthma will respond to this, um, and as I point out in the article, there are a number of different things that should also be co-evaluated in someone who has severe asthma, and maybe we'll get into those a little bit later. But the, the cornerstone of therapy really is uh, inhaled corticosteroids. Um, patients who don't respond to inhaled corticosteroids, um, assuming that they have been properly evaluated, then are candidates for a number of additional therapies. And these include some exciting new immunomodulatory biologic agents uh, that target specific pathways. Um, so getting into the details, uh, omalizumab, which targets IgE, has been used for many years now and, and should be considered in patients with severe asthma who have an elevated IgE. Um, the other pathways that have been targeted also relate to the TH2 phenotype, and these include the um, IL-4 and IL-13 pathway with dupalizumab, uh, which is an anti-IL-4 receptor uh, monoclonal antibody. And then IL-5 is also a recent target in terms of the TH2 pathways, um, and these are really indicated for patients who have high eosinophilia, uh, and medications that have been approved for that include mepolizumab, bembrolizumab, and resolizumab. Great. So before we get into details about each specific agent, maybe we can take a step back and say, I've got a patient with severe asthma. I know they've gotten, they're on a high-dose inhaled corticosteroid. They're on Montelukast. What testing should I have already performed or should I perform in order to decide which agent to choose? So testing is important in severe asthma. Um, certainly at the point that someone is being considered, they should have had 
spirometry and, and um, evaluation for a number of other diseases um, and at a baseline a chest radiograph. But looking to identify some of the common comorbidities is going to be important. This includes evaluation for uh, chronic obstructive lung disease, sarcoidosis, uh, gastroesophageal reflux, either acute or chronic respiratory infections, sinus disease, bronchiectasis, um, interstitial lung disease, and then non-pulmonary diseases such as cardiovascular disease. So depending on the history that may involve other testing to evaluate this, often patients should have a, a chest CT uh, if their asthma is very poorly controlled, and it might be worthwhile to undergo a cardiovascular evaluation, for example, with a echocardiogram or a, a pro-brain natriuretic peptide evaluation. So at, at that point, I will often look for other asthma-associated diseases that occur very rarely outside of individuals who've been diagnosed with asthma, and this includes allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis or ABPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis, aspirin sensitivity, uh, chronic rhinosinusitis, um, and sometimes you can see exercise-induced bronchospasm. Um, at this point in the evaluation of those diseases, you're going to want to test for several serum uh, markers, including IgE levels, aspergillus-specific uh, IgG, and ANCA, as well as the CDC with differential. Um, it's also going to be important to look for uh, triggers and, and what exposures might be contributing, and if any of those are modifiable. If patients continue to have severe symptoms related to asthma, then certainly a serum IgE to look for elevated IgE, as well as uh, an eosinophil count would be warranted prior to considering some of these advanced uh, biological therapies. Gotcha. I think that's a really great overview. So I work for a patient. I've done the workup. I've excluded other comorbid illnesses or diseases that could mimic asthma. And I've done my IgE uh, panel. It's elevated at around 400. And I'm talking to my patient. You know what? I think uh, omalizumab may be an option for you. What would I tell them in terms of to expect from the therapy and any uh, important side effects? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, obviously, the big risk to be aware of, in particular for omalizumab, is having a, an anaphylactic reaction, and so they need to be monitored uh, very closely, especially during the initial treatments of that. The other side effects uh, are, are sort of generalized headaches and arthralgias associated specifically with uh, omalizumab. Um, but patients in large studies have shown that they can reduce their exacerbations in the range of 25 to 50% in subjects with FEV1s that are uh, lower than normal uh, in the 40 to 80% predicted. The other important consideration before starting any of these treatments is to consider the dosing because these are administered subcutaneously. So patients will need to be um, comfortable with administration of, of the subcutaneous injections uh, on a two to four week basis. And then for all the patients, there is the risk of stroke or TIA. Um, how do you explain that risk to uh, patients in terms of uh, using omalizumab? Yeah, so I, it, it certainly needs to be part of the conversation. Um, when I initiate any of these therapies, it's important to discuss that although the general population, a certain percent will improve um, the decision to, to start on any therapy, in particular any of these biologics, 
needs to be tailored to the benefits that that individual patient can expect. So that's an important conversation to have in patients who are otherwise healthy and young uh, without comorbidities. The risk of that is very low, and I think certainly in comparison to the potential benefit that someone who has severe asthma with an elevated IgE level could have. Um, In contrast, a patient who may have other comorbidities and heart failure that may be contributing to their their symptoms uh, and who might already be at a higher risk for a cardiovascular event, then the conversation gets uh, tailored a little bit differently. So so let's switch the scenario. Um, Instead of uh, my patient with severe asthma having uh, elevated IgE levels, they've got an elevated eosinophil count of maybe 500. How would you choose between the available therapies? Because there seem to be a lot more options for targeting eosinophils. Yes, and, and that can be a challenge. So the three agents that I mentioned are all um, indicated for patients with elevated eosinophils. They all target um, the IL-5 pathway, and these would be mepolizumab, bembrolizumab, and resolizumab. You know, sometimes the consideration is how frequently someone will want an injection with benralizumab. Uh, you can extend it out to every uh, eight weeks. Otherwise, it's given, and the other agents are given every every four weeks. But at, at that point, it's um, sometimes a, a little bit of trial and error. Um, the one consideration with uh, resolizumab is that there have been uh, an association with uh, observed in increased malignancies at six months, uh, not one particular type, um, and that does also carry with it a um, black box warning for anaphylaxis at um, less than half a percent of patients. So those are the considerations. And then in patients who either clinically have atopic dermatitis or there's suspicion that that may be comorbid, dupalizumab would be the option because that's been actually approved for that as well. Um, And so all of these agents have been approved for patients 12 years uh, and older, with the exception of resolizumab, which is for patients who are uh, 18 years and older. Gotcha. And then a a question that some of my patients have asked me is, okay, you're putting on this new fancy drug. Do I still need to take that inhaler and that uh, singular that I was being prescribed? Yeah, the, the answer to that is yes. And the studies that have shown benefit have really focused more on uh, reduction in corticosteroid use, meaning uh, oral corticosteroid use or exacerbation. Um, so you're still going to continue with the cornerstone of asthma therapies. Uh, as I mentioned, the goal of initiating these is to sort of stabilize symptoms, either reduce or come off of oral corticosteroids, and potentially in the long term um, then back down on some of these other therapies which can be done, although the the large studies don't report the details of that. Um, But certainly I have patients who um, we've been able to come off some of their inhalers while maintaining them on one of these agents. And then do you administer these medications in a clinic setting, or do the patients take them themselves at home, or does it have to be supervised? So we're starting to move into an era where patients can be administering these at home. But in, in our clinical practice, we've been bringing patients in uh, and, and, and they actually get observed for several hours after the administ- first administration of all of these because of the, the risk for developing um, anaphylaxis, and we want them to be in a, an environment where if they need treatment for that, that's readily available. 
So uh, right now, my clinical practice has been to have these administered in the clinic, um, but there are opportunities for some of these to be administered, self-administered, which is much more convenient for the patients, obviously. Definitely. And then in terms of new therapies, you mentioned uh, several new therapies that are available in the pipeline that aren't uh, clinically available. Maybe you could just give us a brief overview of what we can expect in the next five years. So a number of additional therapies are being investigated that modulate immune responses. Um, These include anti-IL-13, which is a TH2 cytokine, um, as well as uh, other cytokines, uh, IL-2, IL-33, and um, the thymol stromal uh, lymphopoietin TSLP. So these are all being investigated. What I would like to see, and there have been limited studies, is to look at uh, the non-TH2 pathways uh, to see whether or not there might be options for that. But that's, uh, I think, a little bit further down the road than five years. Um, Other things that are being considered, um, prostaglandin D2 um, receptor, uh, the tyrosine kinases and um, endothelian A receptor are all being targeted uh, with preliminary clinical studies that have been conducted in humans. But this really highlights sort of the theme from this article, which is asthma is a heterogeneous disease, and while targeted therapies are likely to work in some patients with particular phenotypes or endotypes, it's going to be important to identify which patients uh, these targeted therapies are going to work best in. Gotcha. And then we'll take a step back, and maybe you could just... uh describe some of the common pitfalls and mistakes that you've seen uh, clinicians make in the management of severe asthma and the advice that you would give them? Yeah, so that's a a great question. Um, I think it's really more about opportunities to to improve the care for these patients. One of the um, important aspects of asthma care, I think, is to get a very detailed environmental exposure history because many of the triggers can be identified either related to specific environments or specific exposures. And so I think that's very important in potentially modifying the setting where someone works or where they live uh, in important ways. In patients who have severe asthma um, who are being treated at centers where they aren't comfortable and, and haven't administered some of these advanced therapies, it's important for them to be referred to a center that has experience using multiple of these advanced therapies and is able to do the, the phenotyping, although the phenotyping is not particularly difficult uh, and should be readily available. And then the other thing that we haven't talked about, but I think it's important to be aware of, is uh, consideration for bronchial thermoplasty, which um, has shown some benefit in severe asthma patients. Yeah, thank you for that overview. Um, and one of the questions that some of the patients posed to me is, why is there such a variability in age? Why do some people get asthma as kids versus some as adults? And why, in some patients, does the asthma completely resolve, never to come back again, whereas in others it persists lifelong? How would you respond to your patients if they asked you that? So that's a great question, and that, that's something I'm actively interested in. Uh, in researching, uh, I think that, as I alluded to before, the, the common symptoms of asthma really reflect a number of heterogeneous diseases. And so I think uh, childhood onset asthma is very different than adult onset asthma in the ways that I described earlier uh, in terms of the gender, comorbidities, and severity. Um, so I think when patients are diagnosed with asthma or severe asthma, 
the underlying mechanisms or, or the endotypes are probably being driven in different ways. Um, the, you know, the other aspect you said, sometimes it goes away or it goes away and comes back. Um, and I think that really hits on the fact that the environment is really important. And we know that the two big risk factors for developing asthma are genetics, which accounts for somewhere between 20 and 80% of the risk of developing asthma, um, and the environmental risk factors. Um, and there are a number of early childhood environmental risk factors that have been shown to be either protective or uh, increase the risk of asthma. Okay. Thanks for the response. Um, so, Nathan, as we draw to the end of the podcast, I want to be mindful of your time and that of the audience. Is there anything in preparation for this podcast that we haven't covered that you think our audience should definitely know? No, I think the, the take-home of this podcast is that severe asthma reflects a number of underlying pathophysiological processes, um, and we should be encouraged that now, as, as pulmonary doctors, we're able to provide personalized medicine to target some of these pathways. Great. Well, a very big thank you to Dr. Shatler for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.